Hello, and welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. This is Adam White, AEI resident scholar, and I'm joined as always by my friend, Tal Fortgang. Tal, how are you? I'm doing great, Adam. How are you? I'm well, thanks. You know, I've been reading a lot by Herb Storing these days. 25 years ago, AEI published a wonderful collection of his writings edited by Joe Bissett titled Toward a More Perfect Union. I've been reading it lately because Herb Storing, the late scholar of the American founding, he actually wrote a lot on administration and on the relationship between the president and the bureaucracy that serves under the president. And so there's a lot there to read. And by the way, I should know that Herb Storing, among other things, was a mentor to our colleague, Gary Schmidt, who really turned me on to Storing's writings on administration. But what Storing was perhaps most famous for writing on was his writings on the Anti-Federalists. In fact, his collection of The Complete Anti-Federalist, published in 1981, which begins with an essay titled, What the Anti-Federalists Are For. You know, Tal, you and I have spent so much time over the last year talking about the Federalists. I suppose we've given the anti-federalists a little bit of short shrift, don't you think? Well, you certainly have, because your federalism is not robust enough, as I've mentioned to you far too many times, and now you're undoubtedly going to mute me on this chat. I'm a slow learner. You'll get there with me eventually. You know, in Storing's collection of the anti-federalists, and it begins with this essay on what the anti-federalists were for, he says, the United States Constitution was framed by a numerous and diverse body of statesmen sitting over three months widely, fully, and vigorously debated in the country at large, and adopted by, all things considered, a remarkably open and representative procedure. But then he says it wasn't just the ones we think about, Hamilton, Madison, John Jay, the Federalists. He says it was a dialogue with the Anti-Federalists, and he says the Anti-Federalists are entitled then to be counted among the Founding Fathers in what is admittedly a somewhat paradoxical sense, and to share in the honor and the study devoted to the founding. You know, there's some interesting writings lately on the Anti-Federalists. One that I particularly like was a collection edited by Michael Zuckert and Derek Webb on the Anti-Federalist writings of the Melanchthon Smith Circle, which came out a couple of years ago. But just last year, the New York University Journal of Law and Liberty published some really wonderful remarks by a federal judge. The remarks were titled, The Anti-Federalists Passed as Prologue, And the article was the published version of remarks that this judge delivered at a conference at NYU. As it happens, I was at that conference too. As it also happens, the judge is a judge I've I've long admired in part, but not only because he's a judge that I've long known. It's Judge Andrew Oldham of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And surprise, Tal, he is our guest on today's episode. Judge Oldham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Adam and Tal. It's really a real honor to be here and to chat about this topic with you all today. Now, by way of background for our audience, Judge Oldham has had a fascinating career in public service. He was appointed to the Court of Appeals in 2018 by President Trump. Before that, he served as counsel to Texas's Governor Abbott, and he also served as Texas's Deputy Solicitor General. Before that, here inside the Beltway, he served in the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel for Judge Samuel Alito, and he also clerked for another judge that I happen to know and love, the D.C. Circuit's judge, David Santel. And before all of that, he was even an AEI intern. You know, Judge, should I call you Judge or Andy? <laughs> it, it seems super weird, given that I've known you from the first day I got to law school. You know, <laughs> and you interviewed me for my clerkship with Judge Santel, as you recall. I do. I do recall. That's and that, here I am interviewing you again. I um, hope you're nicer today. 
<laughs> so this time we'll dispense with the formality, but thinking ahead of our conversation today and thinking about your background, I mean, you really are in a unique position to think through the issues raised by the anti-federalists, given your work both in federal government and in state government, to say nothing of your role now in the federal judiciary. So let's talk about the anti-federalists and let's just start with the basics. Who were the anti-federalists? Well, it's a, it's a great question and it's one that in some ways is unanswerable. It's wonderful that we, I think, are doing this podcast. It's wonderful that you are reading Herb Storing. You know, one of the great tragedies, I think, of this topic is that his, his wonderful seven-volume set is no longer in print. It took me two years to find a copy of it, a used copy of it. And I have tried very desperately to get it republished in part so that we can have broader conversations about who the Anti-Federalists were and perhaps as importantly or more importantly, why they matter. But even at the time at Herb Storing, who probably, you know, more than anyone else who's ever studied this topic, knew more about the Anti-Federalists, thought more about who they were, did more historical investigation into where they came from. Even he had unanswered questions, right? So for example, one of the, the most important and influential anti-federalists was Federal Farmer. Herb Storing points out that for 200 years, we thought that was Richard Henry Lee of Virginia, but the case for it being Richard Henry Lee, in Herb Storing's words, is, is, quote, weak. Of course, the case for it not being Richard Henry Lee is also weak, says Storing and Gordon Wood and others. And so, you know, some of the most influential ones we don't really know. Some of the others, we, we do know who they were, and they were not a bunch of uneducated and debt-ridden farmers, as, as some have suggested. They were very influential people. They included people like the governor of New York, George Clinton. They included people like Robert Yates, who was a justice on the New York Supreme Court. Interestingly, for those who think that it's just the founding fathers, they also included women. So they included people like Marciotis Warren of Massachusetts, who wrote A Columbian Patriot. So it was a certainly a varied group from all parts of the country from various different perspectives, different states, and they were not a sort of a cohesive triumvirate like the authors of The Federalist were. And that has a lot to do, I think, with their varied approaches to criticizing the Constitution, proposing amendments to it, and the like. By the way, you mentioned The Federalists being sort of a cohesive triumvirate. One of the ironies is that the great success of The Federalist, those writings by Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, is that it overshadows the fact that there were all these other Federalists writing and advocating. In fact, Storing wrote an essay on the other Federalist papers where he sort of looked at the sort of non-canonical writings by Federalists in favor of the Constitution. So the, the success of the Federalist kind of distorts our view of the constitutional writings on both sides of that debate. You mentioned just Two of your examples, George Clinton and Robert Yates, and correct me if I'm wrong, George Clinton ends up serving as vice president of the United States, and Yates was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, right? He left early on over his you know, disagreements with the trajectory of that convention. But these were, as, as you said, these were not sort of out cranks or whatever. These were serious you know, participants in the process, serious statesmen, and, and so on. By the way, you mentioned in passing, you, were, you spent almost two years looking for a copy of the Anti-Federalist. What, what spurred you, if you remember, what spurred you in the first place to dedicate sort of two years of, of book shopping to, to, to find a copy? Well, let me do it in two different ways. I'll talk sort of about how I got interested in this topic and then why I think Herbert Storing's book is totally irreplaceable. And people who want to take the Anti-Federalist seriously 
should accept no substitutes in what they're reading to, to understand it. So the first point first, you know, I had been thinking about the Constitution and doing all kinds of different jobs in various levels of state and federal government for years after law school, clerking twice, as you very graciously mentioned in the introduction, and had not really thought, I'm not sure I'd ever read an anti-federalist essay from the beginning to the end through all of that time. And I came across an essay by Brutus. This would maybe, I don't know, five, six years ago, as I was studying some totally unrelated topic. And I thought, my gosh, these essays are so rich in political theory. They're so rich in historical understanding of what was going on at the time of the founding. And if we want to have a serious conversation about the original public meaning of the Constitution, we have to think about all kinds of different people and different studies. You know, the more diverse the viewpoints that we can possibly understand present at that debate, the better and richer that understanding of that original public meaning will be. And so that was kind of what stoked my interest in, in thinking about the Anti-Federalists. Like I could not figure out for the life of me how they had been you know, ignored for so long. I mean, one popular understanding of why they might be ignored is because they, they lost, the, you know, they opposed the Constitution. And, and we obviously, it is our cherished founding document. And you know, the greatest honor of my life was to take a, an oath to uphold and defend it. So I, in that sense, they, they deserve to be forgotten, right? As, as losers who oppose it, of course, they didn't lose everything, right? I mean, they, they certainly won the Bill of Rights. It was their, one of their principal demands of the Constitution was to have the Bill of Rights, and, and they certainly succeeded in that. And they certainly, irrespective of the Bill of Rights, just thinking about the structural provisions of the Constitution, as I mentioned before, those who take seriously the original public meaning, I think, have to consider both sides of the debate about what these provisions meant, the concerns that were raised at the time, et cetera. And then the second point about why Herb Storing's book you know, you can go on the internet and just search for any one of these essays, and they're all in the public domain, obviously. So if you wanted to read Federal Farmer 4 or Cato 5 or Brutus 1, you can just go search for them. They're on the internet in a hundred different places and read them. What makes Storing's work so incredible are the notes, right? He, his, he has these prologues to each chapter. So he has one, for example, in the state of New York, and he talks about who the people, the anti-federalists were in New York, how it influenced the New York ratification debates. It's way more than just kind of the primary source material of the essays themselves. It is a much broader, richer understanding. It's a, volume one of the seven volume set is the what the anti-federalists are for. And then each chapter has all of this information that explains how it re references to the federalist, how it informs the meaning of the constitution. It's that analytical intellectual property of Herbert Storing that makes the book so invaluable if you go through the essays and you have them on your bookshelves, you can use them in a way that you might not if you had to just go searching on the internet to read one particular essay that would just give you a small little snapshot into the thoughts of the of the framers. Right, and a point that you make in your essay, and again, just to repeat for the audience so they can look it up, the essay is titled The Anti-Federalists Passed This Prologue. It was published in 2019 in the New York University Journal of Law and Liberty. One of the points that you make in that paper is that to really understand, say, Federalist 10, Madison's famous essay, you need to see what he was responding to. When I teach Federalist 78, I always pair it with the, the paper by Brutus from two months earlier that had spurred Hamilton's famous writing. I mean, you point out in the paper that the Anti-Federalists started raising these issues in New York. And sure, New York was always seen as sort of the central battleground for ratification. And so, of course, Hamilton and Madison and Jay would have focused efforts there, but maybe not at the same 
way or the same time that they did. Even the, the choice of the title Publius, right, in, in some ways could have been a, a reaction to the choice of the name Cato. They were the anti-federalists. We've already hinted at this a little bit, but what were they anti? What were they, what were they against? Yeah, this is incredibly, it's an interesting wrinkle in the nomenclature. You know, they never referred to themselves, at least not that I'm aware, as the anti-federalists. That was a name given to them by their opponents, the federalists. You know, in some ways, it's a misnomer, right? Because they were pro-federalism, at least federalism as we understand it today. They, they really thought that the dual nature of sovereignty, where you have states that have some sovereign interests and a federal government that have some sovereign interests and that they cooperate together. In some ways, their powers are separated to check and balance one another. And in some ways, they work together to accomplish mutual ends. They thought that that was a good thing. They were pro that. So it's hard to call them anti-federalism or anti-federalist in the sense that we might understand those words to mean. What they they probably would have preferred, I suppose, if they were trying to name themselves would be something like anti-nationalists or anti-general government. That's more of a mouthful, I suppose. So it doesn't, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But what they were concerned about principally was the consolidation of power in a national government. Of course, that was one of the principal aims of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. It was the principal aim of the Constitutional Convention that predated the Philadelphia one, one that's largely lost to the annals of history, but the the convention that was held in Annapolis, Maryland, or at least tried to happen in Annapolis, Maryland. The concern of the founders at the time was that we have needs as a nation that the states individually are are ill-equipped to achieve. And so we need a broader, stronger central government to respond to, to whether it's economic trade issues or foreign affairs or what have you. There were several of them at the time. And so the the whole purpose of coming together in Philadelphia in 1789 was to achieve that. In many ways, that was the thing that they were really getting at. And the anti-federalists were super concerned that that was going to be, that down that road was going to lie a serious problem for the structure of American government. Right. So to say what they were anti is is just another way of saying what were they for. And, And you focus on these things in your paper. And the two main themes you focus on in your paper were the themes of federalism and that allocation of power between the states and the national government, and also their concerns about executive power and its echoes in the debates we have today on the administrative state. One point you make in passing, it's funny, we were just talked a moment ago about the nomenclature, anti-federalists and the federalists. You point out that even in the names of the authors, the pen names selected by the authors, you see these efforts to sort of claim or reclaim territory. And you point out that one of the anti-federalists, he takes the name Cincinnatus, which as you, I forget your exact word, but you say it's sort of a double move mm-hmm. because on the, it refers back to, of course, the classical Cincinnatus, the farmer statesman, the citizen statesman. But then also in more recent times when the paper is written, when the anti-federalist paper was written, Cincinnatus is reclaiming the term from the Society of Cincinnati, right, which was seen as sort of a nascent institution of both centralized and hereditary power, right? Yeah. The sort of this institution built by some of the men who had fought in the, in the Revolutionary War. And so you see this sort of claiming of, of, of nomenclature as a way to sort of claim, not just define, but also claim or reclaim turf from the other side. I thought that was a a nice touch in your article. Let's talk about the two main themes, federalism and executive power. What were the anti-federalists' concerns about the proposed constitution's centralization of power? They came at this in a bunch of different ways. 
it's one of the principal criticisms in the Federalist Papers of the Anti-Federalist Critiques is that there's so many different criticisms, even on the same theme, that it's hard to respond to them. And, and sometimes the Anti-Federalists disagreed with each other. So in order to sort of talk about it intelligently, you have to make a, a few generalizations. But maybe I'll just pick an Anti-Federalist author or two, and, and we can use that one as a lens to understand the concern. So if you think about Federal Farmer, for example, Federal farmers' concern about the structure of government went something like this. We, the anti-federalists, want to have as much government power as close to the people as possible. And the reason we want to do that is because we think, the anti-federalists would say, that the closer the government power is to the people, the more accountable the government is to the people, and the more the people feel invested in their government, and that that is a happy, symbiotic relationship. And it feeds back into one another. When people feel like they can trust the government, the people are more likely to feel invested and to you know, pay taxes and all the rest of it, to believe in law and order, to understand the legitimacy of what the government is doing, et cetera. And when the government knows that the people are watching, that the government is going to be more faithful to the, to the will and, the, and the, the desires of the people who elect them. And they have all sorts of analogies that they use and historical allusions to experiments of Republican forms of government in the past. And obviously, as we, we were just talking about, their names themselves harken back to the first Roman Republic. And, and in fact, if you, if you think about Brutus and Publius and Cincinnatus, those three people serve in the first, second, and third Roman consulates, respectively. So all of this goes back, and all, whether it's the names or the substance of the argument, all goes back to understanding what does, quote unquote, good Republican government look like. And so what they were concerned about is that if you take power, if you read federal farmers' essays, if you take power from the states and you move it further away, some of this seems silly to talk about in present times and when we have you know, the internet and social media and constant news cycles and everything else. But mm-hmm. obviously in the late 18th century, they don't have any of that. And so you know, taking power from a state like, say, New York and moving it to Washington, D.C. would be a significant problem or moving it from Virginia to Philadelphia would be that this is a significant physical distance to move the representatives, the seats of government, the ability to communicate, et cetera. And what they worried about is that what's going to happen is that the people will feel less invested. The people will feel less trustworthy. The government will feel less accountable. The government will feel more willing to do whatever it is that the officials in power want to do and less what the people who put them there want them to do. And that that's going to create a negative feedback loop right? That is going to lead to entropy. And so that was the, the central anti-federalist concern. And their desire for federalism, the way they articulated it, was that they wanted to keep the power closer to the people because they thought that the Republican form of government would best work on a small scale, not on a big scale. So there's a lot of very colorful rhetoric in the essays about what happens when you try to do government of the people, by the people, for the people, but in a larger scale, like what they, <laughs> they conceived of the United States back then as enormous, even though it's obviously much bigger today. Right. And well, and then hence Madison's effort in, in Federalist 10 to argue that the extended republic is actually the safer republic by being able to, to sort of solve some of the problems inherent in the, the smaller republics. But just really briefly thinking about those the smaller republics or the, or the, the smaller states and local governments, to the anti-federalists, as they were sort of making these arguments about national government, did they offer sort of a vision of what the right form of government within the states would be? I'm sorry to put you on the spot because this is beyond the scope of your article, but I'm just I'm curious if that entered into their argument or if the state governments were just sort of taken for granted and this was an argument strictly about the federal government. 
No, I think it's more of the latter than the former in the sense that, remember, it's not like it's not like we didn't have a constitution in 1789 when everyone met in Philadelphia, right? We had one. It was the Articles of Confederation. The state governments were things. The state governments were doing, there was a Continental Congress, as we were talking about, Richard Henry Lee was in it. And so, you know, there were, there was a form of government, the states were existing entities, you know, an interesting sort of side part of the anti-federalist critique of, and, and as you, you know, you mentioned earlier, the New York delegation splitting apart in the summer of the Constitutional Convention, of a big part of the splitting apart was that the states were the ones who had sent the delegates on behalf of the states, right? They were, they were, they were supposed to be exercising. They were delegates of the state legislatures. They had commissions. You know, one of the things they do on the first day of the constitutional convention is they read the commissions into the record where George Washington is presiding over the convention. And they say, Oh, you know, this is John Lansing and Robert Yates and Alexander Hamilton. They are the deputies from, from New York. And they read the commissions into the record. And so the states and the state's abilities to exercise influence, that was, that was a given, I think in the anti-federalist view. And I, different anti-federalist essays take a different approach as to how much reform they thought was necessary. I mean, I, I don't think that it would be fair necessarily to say the anti-federalists opposed all attempts to reform the articles. There were obviously deficiencies that everyone seemed to recognize. It was simply that the anti-federalist concerns about federalism was that what was going to happen when you had created this new general government is that the states would quote, get melted down, right? That they would somehow, they would be the polar opposite of, of ongoing entities. They would be sort of melted into one big general government and almost like afterthoughts as instruments of government and government power. So the, the problem from their perspective was not just that we'd have this new national government that would be unresponsive and, and problematic in certain ways, but that it would also undermine the, the state governments as they then existed. That's right. That's not too far-fetched, right? I mean, Hamilton was no particular fan of state governments and other federalists, too. And quite frankly, in the era of the Constitution's founding, you'd seen sort of a rebirth of constitutionalism, the, the new states rewriting writing and rewriting new constitutions. But the states weren't utopias at all, right? In the sort of the turmoil following the Revolutionary War, the concerns about not just national issues. And the Annapolis Convention, you mentioned, by the way, that and, and, the, and the discussions at Mount Vernon, right, were centered around first and foremost real problems with commerce and navigation among the states, for which the states, at least those who, who came to the conference, thought the states were not really up to solving on their own. But there were real problems within the states. But again, that would lead some to, like Hamilton to perhaps reduce the states to almost bureaucratic entities sort of carrying out the federal government's policies. Well, you know, one of my favorite examples about Hamilton and his responses to some of these anti-federalist criticisms about like what's going to happen to states and stuff is what gave birth to the 11th Amendment, right? So, you know, one of the concerns about the new federal court system was what is going to happen if a citizen of one state sues another state in a federal court to collect on a revolutionary war debt, right? Because was, that was a big issue. That was one of the things that I think was, was driving the convention movements in the late 18th century was, oh goodness, we, <laughs> we've got all kinds of these different debts and this would be super scary, right? If the states were all of a sudden exposed outside of their own courts where they would otherwise have sovereign immunity, the thinking went, sees claims and Hamilton says, no, that's not going to happen. And as, as we all know, didn't take very long, <laughs> didn't take very long for Chisholm to sue Georgia and to end up with that very dispute that gave rise, obviously, to the 11th Amendment. 
So the the anti-federalists were on the one hand concerned about melting down state power. On the other hand, clearly expressed in their fight for the Bill of Rights was a concern that certain ostensibly inalienable individual rights would also sort of become part of the, the scope of the federal power. And they clearly did not want that. So that leads me to ask about police powers and what the anti-federalists would have thought of as the proper scope for state powers to abrogate certain individual freedoms and which they thought were particularly out of bounds and where that line was drawn. And I'd add, and how to protect that line. Well, you know, it's interesting. If you read what the anti-federalists were saying about the need for a Bill of Rights, and my goodness, are there a bunch of essays on this topic. The very first, if memory serves, the very first anti-federalist essay was published by, under the pseudonym Sentinel. It was all about, wait, where are the Bill of Rights? Where's the Bill of Rights? It's not so much, I don't think, when you listen to their criticisms anyway, about the states and the states protecting of individual liberties or concerns about state police power. They just took literally for granted that the states would do so, largely because the states already had these bills of rights. So if if you read Sentinel 1, Sentinel says, well, he's talking about the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And says, look, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania protects your right to a jury and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania protects your right to speech and religious freedom and the right to petition the government. And the the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania protects this, that and the other. All of these things from the state's Bill of Rights, right? These bills of rights have these long historical pedigrees that go all the way back to Magna Carta. The idea that we write down the rights that we want protected had been going on for hundreds of years. And the first English Bill of Rights in 1689 has very similar in at least in certain respects, some of the same rights declared as, as our Bill of Rights or our Constitution. And so the thing that, that they were really upset about was we're going to create a new form of government, this new national general government, and it's not going to have those same restrictions that the states have already imposed on themselves. So at least not that I can recall off the top of my head, do they have any concerns that the states would somehow transgress those? They just took for granted that they would since they'd already written them down. Now, looking to the second issue, past federalism to just within the national government, the federal government, the executive power. You write on this, and actually this is the theme that you open the article with, the modern debates, the cases that the Supreme Court has heard just recently on administrative power and on the relationship between administrative agencies and the rest of government. In your remarks then, after dealing with federalism, you come around to this question of executive and administrative power and the anti-federalist concerns that even with, within that dangerous federal or national government, there would be this particular branch that would pose unique dangers to Republican government as, as the anti-federalists saw it. So what were their concerns about, about the executive power? Yeah. So again, they have myriad ones in the way that they they come at this. But some of them are concerns about, like, so I'll give you an example of one that we don't talk about at all today, um, which I think is kind of an interesting one, just as a matter of historical interest. And that is the vice president, right? So they, they were concerned that the vice president is the president of the Senate, but also, so therefore has legislative power, but is also obviously in the executive branch and has executive power. And so they talk about the separation of powers problems. You know, one of the, the sort of common vocabularies of the day is that the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists alike talk about Montesquieu and separation of powers and the need, you know, so they're, they're absolutely talking to each other. And the only questions that they really have are, are we achieving the thing that we seem to want, that we both want to achieve? And so they would, they would say, oh, well, 
how can we have an executive officer who's also the president of, of the Senate? That's scary to, to the anti-federalist mind. So, and we've had all kinds of separation of powers cases in, in the Supreme Court and the federal courts in the intervening 200 plus years. But as far as I can think of, we, we haven't really had one about the, the vice president and his, his different roles. So that's one where we just don't really talk about that anymore today. Another one that they talked about that we don't really talk about today is the electoral college. I mean, obviously the, there is a public conversation about the electoral college, but it, it seems to be very different than what the anti-federalists were concerned about. The, the anti-federalists were concerned that these electors would be sort of the subject of themselves would be the candidates, right? There would be lobbying or influence to, to, to get the electors votes. And obviously that doesn't seem to be part of the, the public conversation anymore. But if you take a step back and you think broader, bigger picture about their concerns of executive power, one of the things that they were really, really nervous about was aristocracy. It's a word that shows up over and over and over in the anti-federalist essays. I'm thinking in particular of Cato 4 and Cato 5 are just very fixated on this concept of aristocracy. And what did they mean by that? Well, well, they were concerned about a permanent ruling class, right? They were worried about people who would have power indefinitely and not accountable to public input or public oversight, public influence or public control. And, and that is by you know, control of the people. And so in that sense would look like aristocrats. And you know, you mentioned earlier, Adam, we were talking about the society of the Cincinnatus. That was one of their principal concerns. You know, the Society of the Cincinnatus, our first, our nation's first veterans organization, founded by George Washington, the first president of the Society of the Cincinnati, the first group of people in the society, all veterans of the Revolutionary War, but then membership in the society passed by hereditary descent to, to their heirs. And so it was that looks aristocratic to the anti-federalist conception. And the people in the society of the Cincinnati, they were very concerned about. These are the wealthy and the elite and the powerful and not the common folk. I'm forgetting the numbers off the top of my head, but it was like 23 of the 55 people who signed the Constitution in Philadelphia were members of the Society of the Cincinnati, a huge number. And they were worried that this kind of idea of aristocratic rule or hereditary rule or permanent rule that's separated from the people. You can see that common theme. They wanted the power not separated from the people. They wanted it connected to the people, that that was going to be a risk or, or downside to the new proposed general government. And of course, if you read scholarship, which I know you in particular do regularly about these, the criticisms of, of modern executive power, or the administrative state, or what have you, a lot of it has to do with the same kind of idea, right? that power is, is wielded by administrative agencies that are not necessarily, in many ways, are designed to be insulated from public control. And as you said, it's obviously different now from then in many ways in terms of communications, in terms of travel, and so on. It is different, but it has echoes in these current debates over the, the general posture of government towards the people and the attitude of the kinds of people who will rule or lead or govern and the people who are governed, right? And today we have these debates somewhat, there, there are sometimes debates about expertise, there's sometimes debates about culture, but you trace that through, and again, that's how you, how you start the paper. I'm curious, reading this paper and talking with you now, as I mentioned at the outset, your career didn't start in Texas. You started in Washington clerking for judges, but then serving in the United States Justice Department, so serving in the core of the executive branch. I'm not going to ask you to sort of criticize your old job, but I'm just curious, how does what you read in the Anti-Federalist about executive power and the federal government, 
how does it make you sort of think now about those parts of, of the executive branch that you served in? I mean, how do those two images sort of stand next to one another? Yeah. Well, one of the reasons that I wanted to serve in the Justice Department is because clerking for our shared former boss and working in the D.C. Circuit for a year, you get to see an enormous amount of administrative law. And it's long been something that I've interested in. And I wanted to have sort of a front row seat to understand how it's made, understand how the, the good parts of it, to understand the parts that might need some attention. And especially as a young lawyer, I thought that was a, an incredibly rare opportunity to be able to, to do that. And, and it was one of the most interesting times of my entire career. So, you know, the thing that I think is really interesting when you read the Anti-Federalist Essays, and even when you can find at a certain level of generality, some of the concerns that we hear in modern debates about administrative law, for example, it boggles the mind that there can be both that sort of relevance, and you can hear the same echoes of the debates, and yet there's just no conceivable way that any human being writing in the late 18th century could have imagined the sorts of administrative law problems that modern government has to confront. In many ways, I think that makes the anti-federalists and their federalist counterparts all the more intriguing that they could somehow, that they could have these enduring themes of debate, even though there's just no conceivable way that they could understand things that, that modern administrative agencies have to deal with. Yeah, and at the same time, in terms of your background, after serving in the Justice Department and, and OLC, you went to the States, you went to Texas, you served in the Solicitor General's office, and the sorts of reform-minded questions that we're talking about now, about reforming the, the administrative state, those questions really arose in no small part from litigation brought by the states. And it wasn't even by just sort of red states suing the Obama administration, right? One of the sort of seminal cases of modern state litigation was Massachusetts and other states suing the Bush administration. I mean, in a very different way for a very different policy, but really the birth of state solicitor general offices in the last 20 years as a place for constitutional litigation at the highest levels of professionalism, enabling the states to really play a much stronger role in federal litigation about federal administrative policy. I mean, that really is a revolution of the last 20 years. And in some ways, I suppose then it's fitting then that these questions about pushing back against the modern administrative state, they came not just from other parts of the federal government, but they came from the states in a way that has echoes of state worries about the U.S. Constitution in, in the founding era. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, one thing the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists certainly agreed about, right, is that we need balance, right? But we need balance, whether it's horizontally between the three branches of the general government or vertically between the general government and the state governments, that they need to have some sort of balance. And I remember when I was in law school, one of my professors, I don't know if we shared Ernie Young in, in common amongst the, the others that we had overlapping, but Professor Young, who's now at Duke, I remember him very very vividly saying that one of the sort of unmet needs at the time, this is admittedly a hundred years ago, right? But that one of the unmet needs at the time were state governments and their and their lawyers' offices, right? That the United States government has the Justice Department. They have the office of the Solicitor General. They they have this, you know, very talented lawyers and the ability to to advocate for the federal government's position throughout the 20th century. We've we've created public defenders offices and whether it's at the federal level or at the state and local level to help defendants. But, and I think and if memory serves, he attributed this to Justice O'Connor as a comment that the states didn't have sort of a similar sort of attorney presence, but right, is a, a litigation presence. And you're right. I mean, it really has been in the last 20 years or maybe 30, 
but you know, certainly in, in relatively recent history that the states have had attorneys that perform that way. Just a couple last questions. We've talked about some of the ways in which the anti-federalists seem to prescient or at least raise good points that force the federalists to, to really think through and, and, and respond strongly. In reading the anti-federalists, in what ways do you think they got it wrong? Which concerns do they raise that really seemed to be misfires? Are there any that stand out? It's interesting. One of them that I have always kind of screwed my nose up at, I suppose, is Patrick Henry, who, as far as we know, was not one of the authors who wrote under a pseudonym in the sort of general canon of anti-federalist essays, but was certainly an anti-federalist and gave impassioned speeches during the ratification debates in Virginia about the proposed constitution. You know, one of his stalking horses was he did not like we the people in the preamble. He was very angry. He gave this long speech about what do you mean we the people? It should say we the states. You know, as we were talking about earlier, the states were the ones who sent the delegates to Philadelphia. What is this we the people stuff? And we the people is now, for obvious reasons, one of the most celebrated parts of the Constitution. It gets quoted by the Supreme Court in constitutional interpretation. You know, Justice Scalia was very passionate about talking about the, you know, we the people language in the preamble of the document. So that's one that seems like even if you can understand what was going on at the time, and even if you can understand why that was one of the criticisms, it's certainly one that to modern ears really falls flat. And finally, in the paper, you don't focus on the, the anti-federalist concerns about the federal judiciary. Of course, they had some concerns. When, as I mentioned, when I teach Federal 78, I also teach Brutus's writings where he famously says that the judges, given the power of judicial review, but also effectively life tenure, They'll be so independent, they'll feel independent of heaven itself, and that they won't actually be bound down by the written constitution or really by anything. One of the ironies of that now, thinking through in our conversation here, is that I've, as a judge, I know, I've known you for a long time, and, and I know that you know even before a judge, but now especially as a judge, you feel very much bound down by the constitution in, in the right way, yet part of your understanding of the constitution, ironically, is improved by your awareness of the anti-federalists, right? In a way that was the anti-federalists' warnings about the Constitution's maybe risks actually may help to make you a better constitutional judge. I guess I'd ask just in broad general terms, as you go about the work of a judge, how do you apply sort of the, the, the writings of the anti-federalists and also the, the federalists? Yeah. What role does, do those writings play in your own sort of formation and work as a judge? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I obviously think about this stuff a lot. Even if I'm not reading an anti-federalist essay on a given day, I think about the concepts that these people, men and women, were debating. And I think about it constantly in almost everything that I do, even in cases that don't involve constitutional interpretation in the following sense. The judicial power that is vested by Article 3 is an incredibly strong and awesome, I don't mean awesome in a colloquial sense, I mean awe-inspiring, awesome power vested by the people into their government and their government officials. And the debates that were had at the founding really elucidate, I think, just how incredible that power is. It's true of the other coordinate branches of government as well. But you know, from where I sit, it's the one that I think about constantly. And it means that we have to be so incredibly careful. And it means we have to be so incredibly diligent and so I try to think about that in every single case. You know, I, we have, especially in the regional circuits, you know, we, we deal with just an incredible caseload. The Fifth Circuit is very, very busy. And some days the time seems to be 
the scarcest commodity, right? In the sense that we just we have too many cases and too many things that have to get done. I have to get done quickly. And I try and I pause. I constantly pause. I tell my law clerks this. I tell my judicial assistant this. I sometimes talk about it with my colleagues. Every single judgment matters. Every single time we exercise that power, we are exercising the power of the United States government. And it is incredibly important that we take it seriously. It doesn't matter if it's a pro se plaintiff. It doesn't matter if it's a petition that's written, that's handwritten in pencil. We have to take it seriously. And so I think that's the biggest thing I have always taken away from listening and reading and studying the way and how seriously the men and women at the founding took the debate that gave us that power. Well, Judge, thank you for that. And, and thank you for joining us today. It is my great pleasure and my great joy. It's wonderful to see you. It's great to see you, Tal, as well. Thank you for having me. I just want to say again, the title of the article that gave rise to this conversation is The Anti-Federalists Past is Prologue. His article cites back quite a lot to the collection of Anti-Federalist writings by Herb Storing. I'd really encourage our listeners to not just look for those essays, but also you can learn more about Herb Storing through the book, again, that AEI published called Toward a More Perfect Union edited by Joe Bissett. It's also a great website dedicated to the, the writings of Herb Storing. It's part of the Contemporary Thinkers series of websites. So just Google Herbert Storing and Contemporary Thinkers. You'll find that there. And, and finally, our colleague at AEI, Gary Schmidt, did a really great interview on Herb Storing with our friend Bill Crystal, and you can find that on YouTube. So please look up all of that. Thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And please join us again next time.